So I tell guys, and I tell people in life, if you quit, you're guaranteeing failure. You, 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 you are already negating yourself, and the only thing that you truly have control over. Hey, folks. I want to tell you about a product developed by a friend of mine, Navy SEAL Dr. Kirk Parsley. It's called the Sleep Remedy. I tried it recently during my Unbeatable Mind Summit, and boy, this stuff worked. I can't say enough good things about it. I fell asleep quickly, didn't wake up feeling groggy, and uh, man, I, I was like rock and roll the next day. Doc Parsley designed this to help Navy SEAL teammates back in 09. They had been coming to him and they were having a huge problem with sleep. And, and this is not just SEALs and spec ops that have this problem. It's everybody, or many people I should say, who are hyper successful. So he concocted these things from things that are normally associated with developing, you know, or the, the chemicals that are in your brain that, that help facilitate sleep. And so he pulled them together and now he's put it all into one you know, powder-based product. It's been hugely successful. He's been on the market now for a little while. And, you know, what he said in his talk to us was that everything is degraded when you don't sleep. Your emotions, um, your emotional balance, your decision-making, problem-solving, your impulse control, willpower, they're all degraded because these are all controlled by your prefrontal cortex. And it gets impaired by up to 30% with one single night of sleep where you're deprived. And then furthermore, all of your hormones, testosterone, growth hormone, and uh, they all decrease. The production of those decrease by also up to 30% with just a single night of sleep where you're deprived. And it probably could be just a limited, you know, just an hour off. Doc Parsley's sleep remedy designed to concentrate the most important nutrients that you need when you're preparing to go to sleep. It is drug-free. It's a nutritional supplement. And thousands of people, like I said, have tried it. First responders, Navy SEALs, athletes, CEOs, and they all find that it's very useful. Uh, if you're interested in trying it, there's an unlimited, no questions asked, money back guarantee. And you can get 10% off by entering the code UNBEATABLEMIND when you order it at docparsley, D-O-C-P-A-R-S-L-E-Y.com. So enter UNBEATABLEMIND in the coupon code box at docparsley.com. I recommend you check it out. Hooyah. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the Unbeatable Mind podcast. This is Mark Devine. So stoked you could join me today. I do not take it lightly. I know your time is very valuable and you have a thousand and one things vying for your attention. That's why I'm stoked that you have decided to spend the time here where that time will be spent learning how to develop an unbeatable mind and how to evolve yourself to uh, what I call the fifth plateau. I won't go into detail now, but you can learn all about that at Unbeatable Mind, our online training program, which is a year-long immersion into developing your five mountains of physical, mental, emotional, intuitional, and Kokoro. So I also, before I get started introducing my super cool guest, Jason Redman, I want to let you know about the Burpees for Vet Challenge. So if you go to burpeesforvets.com, burpeesforvets.com, that's a challenge that I launched literally just five days ago to do as many uh, burpees as we can this year to raise awareness and money for vets who are suffering from post-traumatic stress. So my commitment is to do 100,000 burpees. Um, I'm doing that at 300 a day, and then I'll bank some when we're going to do on Memorial Day 
a 24-hour challenge, so you can join us for that. But go check it out, burpeesforvest.com. If you're inspired, you can pledge for myself. You can even put a team together. You can do them solo and get people to pledge you. But we've got about 100 people already on board, and um, you can choose any number of burpees that are going to challenge you. So just make sure it's challenging. So I've got some folks who are on 50,075. Some are trying to up me and trump my 100,000. That's awesome. And I'm sure they'll do it. So go check it out, burpeesforvets.com. It's going to be an amazing thing once we get some, you know, once we get a few hundred. I'd love to get a thousand people on this thing. At any rate, maybe Jason, you can join me, buddy. So welcome, Jason Redman. Uh, super stoked to have you. Uh, how are things going, Jason? Mark, man, awesome. You know, enjoying the frozen tundra of Virginia Beach right now. And uh, just honored to be on your show. Yeah, my mom is in upstate New York and she texted me. She's like, it's 20 below zero. She goes, don't tell me that you're looking at the ocean and it's sunny and warm. And I'm like, I'm looking at the ocean and it's sunny and warm. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I, I, I had a friend that called me this morning and he was like, yeah, don't hate me, but I'm in Hawaii right now. And I was like, well, don't worry. I hate you. <laughs> I hate you anyways, exactly. So Jason, you were a Navy SEAL. Uh, you, you spent 21 years in the teams. I'm just going to give some folks a little bit of background. You Summa cum laude from uh, Old Dominion University, you went into the teams or went into the Navy in 92, went through BUDS in 96. You were a teacher in advanced training. Uh, you, then you went into the Seaman to Admiral program. I remember some of the folks who went into that. I don't know. I want, do they still have that program? They do. It's kind of in the third phase. Yeah. What an interesting program. We'll talk about that. Uh, you got commissioned after that in 2004. Uh, you served in Iraq and uh, you were injured and you were wounded over there. And then when you got out, you know, you've, you've done a whole bunch of other really cool things. So, and one of your pat, we have a lot of things that are in common because you have a passion for leadership and you're an entrepreneur and you're a philanthropist and you're an author. I mean, it's like almost your resume, except for the part about getting shot in the face looks a lot like mine. So let us tell That was me. a smart point to pass on, Mark. I'll yeah. just let you know. <laughs> I figured that. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, smarter than I am. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, maybe in different places, different times. So, tell, tell. Let's start at the beginning. I love to kind of like get into like what motivated you. What were your what was your inspiration as a young man to go into the SEALs or into the Navy to begin with? Were you were you thinking about the SEALs when you went in the Navy? What was that all like for you back then? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I was a kid, I came from a strong military family. Uh, both grandfathers had served. My dad served in the Army during Vietnam. He didn't actually go to the war. He uh, was an airborne rigger instructor. Okay. And uh, that's how he actually found out about SEALs. Back then, the SEAL teams were still going through Army Airborne School. And when I was about 14, I'd always said I wanted to go in the military. I was interested in ground forces, special operations. And my dad said, you know, there's a group of guys in the Navy who uh, highly elite. Some consider it the toughest training in the world. And uh, they, they special operations coming from the water. And he knew that I'd like to swim. Mm -hmm. Uh, I enjoyed the water. I enjoyed all those things. And I started researching it. And there really wasn't a whole lot of information back then about the SEAL teams, but I stumbled across uh, a few things that I could find. Mark, you probably know Tim Basilabak. Oh, yeah. 
And I found Tim's thesis, which it was kind of funny. I couldn't pronounce his name for anything when I got that book. I was telling everybody, yeah, I got this book by this guy named Basil Chavak. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, what was funny is my first SEAL team I checked into, SEAL Team 4, my new CO was a guy by the name of Tim Basiljevac until I met him and found out his name was pronounced Basiljevac. <laughs> and then I just called him Bo from that point forward. That's awesome. Yeah. In fact, um, that wasn't too much. Uh, let's see. You got in the Navy in 92. I went through BUDS in 90. So I was researching the SEALs in the late 80s. And, and right, there really wasn't a whole lot. There were a few Vietnam vet books. Uh, Men with Green Faces. I read that like four or five times. And then the, the Navy Zone recruiting video. Remember that one? That was I talk about that a lot. That was fantastic. Yeah, I actually be someone special. Right. I actually talk about that in my book. Do you? Yeah, I do too. I'm like that one totally inspired me. It was really they run a little op and they blow up this radio tower. It's just pretty awesome. It's so fun. I don't know if you've watched it lately. When you go back and watch it, it's like total 80s cheesy. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go do that. Just get inspired. So you um, you had your eyes set in the seals, but it sounds like it took you a few years to get to Buds. Now, talk about your early career. What was that about? It did. It took me a few years. I trained and I'll, I'll be honest, I started encountering uh, the first levels of adversity when I was a young teenager. One of the things, I'm not a real big guy. I'm 5'8". I'm when I was in high school, I wasn't even 5'8". I, I, I bloomed late. So I was probably when I, I walked in the recruiting station when I was 15 and, uh, and I said, hey, I want to be a SEAL. And I was probably five feet tall and weighed 95 pounds. <laughs> That's awesome. And they laugh, what the hell are you talking uh, about? They, they laughed me right out of the office. <laughs> uh, they let me show, they, they showed me the Be Someone special video. And then uh, they, they kind of tolerated me for a little bit. And I left. And then I came back the next week and asked if I could watch it again. And there was a, a really crusty, salty first class. I mean, old school Navy. Uh-huh. who basically chased me out of there and was like, get out of here. You're wasting our time. Stop. You know, don't come back. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of my first introduction to the military. But I just had this burning drive that this is what I was going to do. And uh, so I trained. I, I went out for the football team. I wrestled. And I came back maybe a year later. There was a new recruiter, great guy. And uh, he helped me down that path. I joined the Navy when I was still in high school at 17. Nice. As soon as I graduated high school, I headed to boot camp down in Florida Mm -hmm. and I screamed. You know, there were no SEAL programs back then. You just basically raised your hand and said, hey, you know, I want to try out for the teams Mm -hmm. for BUDS. And that's what I did. And I picked up a slot, but they were a little backlogged. So they sent me to Naval Special Warfare Group 2. And uh, I hung out there for about a year working in their intel department before I finally got my slot to budge and checked in in January 95. Oh, that's cool. So were you an IS, uh, intel specialist, or what was your rate? Yep, I was an IS. So I worked as a uh, IS at Group 2 and, and uh, at one of the other SEAL teams during yeah. while I was waiting to go to budge. That's cool. That's great preparation, actually. I can't think of anything you know that could prepare you more for what came down the road, huh? Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I got to work and I got amazing insight into the teams. I got I went over and worked at one of the SEAL teams working in the operational readiness exercise. So for anybody listening, that's where we 
It's kind of the final graduation exercise where we take SEAL platoons and get them ready to deploy and, and go to combat if they have to. Mm-hmm. And I got to work in that cell and I got to work with an old crusty warrant officer who took one look at me, you know, this, uh, you know, five foot eight, 130 pound, you know, guy and goes, you're never going to make it through butts. Hmm. He's like, you're too skinny. He's like, I tell you what you're going to do. He's like, every day, and this was like November, he's like, every day you're going to go sit in the Chesapeake Bay for 10 minutes all through the winter until you go to Bud's. <laughs> and uh, so I did it. <laughs> and uh, and I found out later that he would be in staff meetings and be like, you never believe what I got this kid to do. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's awesome. But, I'm but sure, uh, you know what, that, put, that probably put some uh, – some much needed fat on your body, right? To, to well, I think people. so. Not only that, uh, you know, I talk to people, life's about perspective. Right. And I, I won't say that, you know, after several weeks, I felt like, oh, the water's so much warmer out in Buds. But I will admit for the first couple of weeks, I was like, oh, this isn't that cool. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's cool. So then you went to Buds. What class were you at uh, Buds? I, I started 200 and I graduated 202. So you had some setback in buds. Were, were you injured or what happened there? Yeah, I was injured. Uh, two, two separate injuries. I uh, injured my feet and got rolled back and died phase. And then uh, while I was on leave, I did something really stupid and broke my arm yep. while, out dr- while out drinking. Oh, my God. Um, so thankfully, even though I think the instructors knew that my story did not <laughs> uh, did not add up. They let me roll again, but I, I had three weeks from the time I got my cast off to class back up. So I will admit when I class back up, it was pretty brutal. I was pretty weak. Mm. What were the, um, the biggest lessons for you from buds itself, you know, from the actual seal training and getting through hell and all that? Uh, definitely the, the, what I call the overcome mindset, Mark, you probably call it the unbeatable mind. I mean, every SEAL, when I listen to SEAL speakers, we all kind of speak on the same things. And I think those things are, are forged in buds and then they're further reforged and hardened when you get into the teams. Right. And it's really funny. I'm sure you feel the same way. I now, because I speak so much on leadership and teamwork, I look back on what they did in buds, which sometimes the evolutions were just somebody might consider them cruel or somebody may consider them unjustly hard or unfair or any of those things. <laughs> but now I look back and I see totally why they did it mm-hmm. and the method to the madness and what they were teaching us. Mm-hmm. So probably the number one thing I, I here, I'll tell you what, I have three rules to the overcome mindset. And those three rules are the same three rules that I tell young bud students on how to, or pre bud students on how to make it through buds. And rule number one is don't quit. Yeah. Don't physically quit. I, I you know, and, and this and these rules apply in life, they apply in SEAL training, they apply in anything you do. But in buds specifically, if you ring the bell, you have just ended your chance of ever becoming a SEAL. And there's enough external factors out there that can derail what you want to do. You can't control injuries. You can't control these external factors that may play into you getting rolled or you getting, you know, failing something. But the only thing that you can control 100% is whether you ring that bell or not. Mm -hmm. So I tell guys and I tell people in life, if you quit, you're guaranteeing failure. (laughs) You you are already negating yourself. And the only thing that you truly have control over 
So that's number one. Number two, I tell guys not to mentally quit. And uh, mentally quitting will lead you down the path physically quitting. And so many people will mentally quit for days before they finally move to that point where they physically quit. And you, you've seen it. I, I see it all the time. I see it in, in the sports arena all the time. I see individuals playing football or a sport where the team is just totally beat. You know, it's it's 40 to nothing or something like that. And the losing team stops putting out effort. They're just going through the motions. Right. You know, they may physically still be on the field, but mentally they already checked out and lost. Mm-hmm. And I tell guys, if you do that in SEAL training, uh, one, you're letting down your team. And two, you are walking down the path of physically quitting. So you got to steal your mind against mentally quitting. And then the last thing and the biggest lesson I think I learned in SEAL training was uh, life is not fair. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> SEAL training is designed to be unequivocally not fair. Mm-hmm. And I give one of the big examples I give are room inspections, how back when we would do room inspections and they tell you how to be absolutely unequivocally perfect. Mm-hmm. And you'd be standing there with your roommates and the instructors would come through and you knew you had done everything right. And they would look and look and look and they couldn't find anything. And then one of the instructors would reach into his pocket and drop some sand on the floor <laughs> and be like, you got sand on the floor. You guys fail. Yeah. And I remember when I was young, I was like, that's so unfair. That's such BS. And uh, but now I look back and, and especially after having been in combat, combat is unequivocally not fair and life is unequivocally not fair. You can do everything right. You can have the best team. You can have the best mm-hmm. plan. You can have built, you know, the best leadership mindset and the people working with you and yourself, and things will still go wrong. And yeah. it's how you handle yourself and drive forward through that, through those moments when uh, you've done everything right, you know, and can accept that life is not fair. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, most people these days, they, they would just – up and walk out, you know, they would just quit at the first sight of that kind of lack of fairness. They haven't learned that lesson, you know, I, you know, this, this reminds me of that, the old saying in the teams, failure is not an option. And a lot of people think that we thought that we were like perfectionists with that, you know, we couldn't fail. The reality is what you just said is what that, what that's speaking to is that life isn't fair. So regardless of how good you are, how perfect, you know, your plan is, how well you've trained, you know, all conditions are set for you to win this sucker. Um, there's a good percentage of the time you're not going to win. And so the, the only way you could lose is to not learn from that failure, right? So pick yourself up, clean that freaking sand off the floor, <laughs> stand by for the next inspection, right? Exactly. You know, laugh, you know, just find it. And that's the biggest thing I miss. I'm sure you do too about the team. So it's no matter how bad it sucked somebody was cracking jokes or making sarcastic comments that would cause you to laugh. And I miss that. I'm in the civilian world. You you don't see that too often. You know, people get caught up in that stress and it just, uh, that becomes the focus. Yeah. My sense is we have to create that, you know, those environments, that culture. And I've worked really hard myself to try to create that, but it's not easy. You know, the seals have refined that over 60 some odd years. But you're right to have that resiliency where no matter how hard you get kicked or pushed on, you just step back up with a big smile on your face and a joke at the ready. <laughs> I think seal. I think seal training was the funniest period of my life. Quite honestly. Oh, there were so many hysterical moments. Yeah. Uh, I remember a time 
So post Hell Week, we were in uh, Hydro Recons. So, you know, for those of you out there that don't know what that is, it's where we we map beaches. You basically swim offshore with something called a lead line. You know, you map out how deep the water is, and we create a chart so that uh, amphibious forces can come on the beach. Well, post Hell Week, you're so afraid of the water, uh, none of us wanted to be in it. And a whole bunch of us in the class, probably about 25 of us, went out and bought cheater tops to wear under our wetsuits. <laughs> right. And they did an inspection and busted all of us. <laughs> so they made us do the hydro recon that night without any rubber at all, without any wetsuit. And so, of course, we froze. And then the next morning, they, made, they told us that we were going to be kicked out of training. And then they told us we were going to be rolled back. And I remember one of our officers, Gus Kaminsky, who's no longer with us. The instructors asked Kaminsky, hey, what do you want to do, you know, for punishment? And Kaminsky said, well, he said, we uh, we cheated by trying to cheat the cold. So you guys should punish us with the cold. And we all looked at him like we wanted to kill him, skin him alive. (laughs) (laughs) So every instructor tried to come up with the most, you know, evil thing they could think of to make us cold. So after several hours later and nobody had quit, we're all shivering in the in the surf, getting surf tortured. And Kaminsky goes, hey guys, I just want to let you know something. And we're like, oh, what? And he goes, I just want to let you know when I told the instructors we should be punished by the cold. Yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> and we, we all busted out laughing. Everybody's laughing in the surf zone. And I think the instructors saw it and they secured us right after that. That is awesome. I love that. The Halo Neurostimulation System will help you to push boundaries and to perform at your maximum capacity. Now, I'm often testing new products here at Unbeatable Mind, and Halo is the most recent that I've tested. And I felt it absolutely needed to be passed on to the tribe. It's a neurostim device that electrically stimulates the movement centers in your brain. It helps you to move better and faster through neuroplastic adaptation. It's as simple to use as downloading an app and plugging in headphones and then sticking them on your head. Use it for 20 minutes and then you go do your movement or your workout. Now Halo, the company, has graciously offered to give a discount to Unbeatable Mind listeners. If you go to haloneuro.com and at checkout use the code UNBEATABLEMIND125 which will give you $125 off a Halo Sport model. That's an unbelievable offer. So use unbeatablemind125 at haloneuro.com, H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com, to get $125 off. Very generous offer that they put together. Hope you check it out. Hoo-yah. So when you were at, um, you went to SEAL Team 4, right, on the East Coast? after Bud? Correct. Yep. So you served down in um, so that SEAL Team Four was South you know, South America, right? Kind of focused. Yes. Yes. Did you do anything interesting uh, while you were there? I did. I got to do a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, the counter drug war was uh, right. running pretty hot and heavy at that time, and uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go to uh, SEAL Team Four. Right. And I got some unique opportunities to go down into Colombia. And my very first uh, trip, we were deep in southern Colombia. And doing different things and placing sensors and stuff along the river. And I think that was kind of my first introduction that, hey, as cool as this job is, there's also a very real element to it. Because I remember when we went back to pick those sensors up, my senior chief was like, hey, new guy, 
go get those sensors. And oh, by the way, you know, these are all the different booby traps you should be looking for because the FARC, uh, the, the, the guerrilla forces in Colombia, uh, he said they, they booby trap everywhere. Hmm. So here I am on this, you know, 19, 21 year old kid who's walking in this dense jungle next to the river and every explosion that ever could play in my mind is going off as I walk up to recover this, uh, this sensor. So, so Columbia was uh, very neat for me. I love the people. Uh, I love the culture, but I also, for the first time, got to see the real danger associated with our job. You weren't there to, to contact the enemy at all, right? You were just there to advise and to gather intel and stuff. Correct. But we we took contact mm -hmm. uh, in the camp we were in. They shot into the camp uh, mm -hmm. one night, and that was kind of my first exposure to fire. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, it was a dangerous place down there, but, mm -hmm. uh, but it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. Okay. After Team 4, what, what came next? So I did uh, three deployments while I was at Team 4 and then uh, got picked up to go to training. I was a uh, communicator. That was kind of my forte and uh, got selected to go to training. I was teaching, teaching communications, uh, reconnaissance, marksmanship, and a lot of fun. Uh, really, I learned a lot. You, you know, as you know, when you teach, you learn so much more. Now, is this, is this uh, in your training department at Team 4 or advanced training at Pipes? Uh, it was uh, uh, Team 4's training department. Got it, yep. Yeah, before, uh, I, I think it was the early thousands before the training departments consolidated under the groups. Right, right. right. Yeah, we but, had, yeah, go ahead. Our training was all at the team level when I was in the team. So I don't think a lot of people understand that, but it's probably irrelevant for this discussion, but. You know, there's a lot of overhead associated with that. So we had a whole platoon-sized training department, and we handled all our training internally. And the problem with that was that the SOPs were – they differed team to team. And then we went, when we started to interoperate, that, that became a problem. So yeah, we were good, the same. We saw the same thing, and yeah. that's how we operated also. Yeah. Okay, so you went to the training, and after that, I know you went back to combat. Or no, you went, then you went to the uh, Seaman Admiral program. I did. I got selected for Seaman to Admiral out of Team Four, and uh, and got uh, sent to Old Dominion University. I basically could pick three different areas to go to school: Jacksonville, Norfolk, or San Diego. And I had uh, recently married, so I decided to stay in Norfolk and went to Old Dominion University. Got a degree in business management, mm -hmm. and then uh, commissioned in May of two thousand four, and came back to the East Coast, they sent me a SEAL Team 10. And this is where my career kind of went off track a little bit. Mm. You would think that being a prior enlisted guy, you would come back and, you know, you would be this great leader. And unfortunately, when I came back, the world had drastically shifted mm -hmm. uh, because I went to school. I started school in August of 2001. Mm. And obviously, 9-11 happened in September. Right. So I had grown up in a pre-combat military. Right. And by the time I came back, the, all the SEAL teams had combat experience. So here I was. I stepped into this platoon, this brand new J.O., uh, leading guys who had combat experience. But I was an experienced guy. Mm -hmm. And I thought, unfortunately, I thought too highly of my own skills and, mm -hmm. and arrogantly. Uh, my own capabilities. Hmm. And <clears throat> instead of humbling myself and reaching out to 
you know, guys around me to say, hey, man, I don't know how to do this. All this is different from what I've learned in the past. Amazing. Uh, That's a change too, huh? Oh, overnight. It was amazing. Within two years, everything we did uh, was different. Yeah. Incredible. I can see how that would be a real challenge. And not only that, but you've been off the operational. I mean, you've been out of the operating cycle as an instructor, and then you went to school. So you were sitting in a seat. So you were probably four to five years removed from, you know, leading a team with, with a, you know, a bunch of guys who are swinging their weapons around behind you. So I can see how that would be a, good, a big challenge. What was your wake-up call? <laughs> My wake-up call was, uh, and I'll be honest, there were several things that led to this, Mark. I, um, in that platoon, I won't even get into all the details. I'll just focus on myself. The bottom line that... Uh, to cope with the stress of not keeping up, I started drinking uh, way too much. And I started doing what I used to do as a young team guy, go hang out with the guys. And as you know, as a leader, you have to carry yourself as a leader all the time. So I wanted to act like a leader when I was on the job. But then in my free time, I wanted to cut the fool and be an idiot. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is you're a leader all the time. Right. And I, even though I should have known that lesson, uh, I was allowing what was going on around me to drive my decision-making and poor decision-making. So there was that degradation confidence in me. Uh, and then I was part of the, um, I was part of the uh, cycle with Operation Red Wings. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't on one of the helicopters. The, uh, I was actually in Germany when the helicopter got shot down, but, mm-hmm. uh, we flew in the country immediately after recovery officers still going on. We were part of that deployment cycle in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So a lot of stress and drama, I think, around that um, and us trying to get back out into the fight after that incident. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were on a combat operation in Afghanistan. Stop, stop there. So that most people don't realize that, you know, with Operation Red Wing is the story that Luttrell, Marcus Luttrell talks about um, and and Michael Murphy won the Congressional Medal of Honor, so most listeners are aware of that, but um, they kind of forget that SEAL Team 10 lost a ton of really good operators on that rescue mission. We did. We lost uh, my, so we lost our task unit commander, Eric Christensen, and fought. Great guy. Yeah, he was. He was amazing. He was a great leader to learn under. I wish I had heeded some of his lessons, but sometimes, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I look back. Right. And then we lost five more guys from our sister platoon, Echo Platoon. So right. Jock Fontaine, Jeff Taylor, mm-hmm. uh, Jeff Lucas, mm-hmm. uh, Mike McGreevy, and uh, four guys, four guys in Eric. So we lost five total. Yeah, those are all my era, those guys. Yeah, so... You were following up, kind of sweeping up after that. What what impact did that have on Team 10 to lose, you know, so many operators? Major. I mean, there was a tremendous emotional impact and there was a compounded frustration. And I wrote a lot about this in my book because we had a hard time getting out and operating after after that. And there was a lot of reasons for that. There was a lot of political activity that was going on in Afghanistan at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the war was, I don't want to say it was slowing down, but I will say that the leadership in Afghanistan at the time wanted to slow the war down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so 
they were reducing the amount of kinetic operations that were occurring. Mm-hmm. So we kept putting up missions to go out and we were all chomping at the bit. Obviously, after what happened with mm-hmm. Red Wings, we wanted to get out there. So needless to say, it had a it had a hard impact. And fast forward, we finally we went south down to Kandahar and we started operating again. We were all hungry. I was a young I was a young guy and a new leader, and I'd had a lot of friction and issues, uh, a lot of it because of my own mistakes. Uh, so I was on a mission and I made a bad call. Uh, I wanted to get down into the fight. We got into a firefight and I took myself and our machine gunner down to try and support an element that was on the ground. You know, and it's funny, a lot of people who don't understand the military and the way things work, they're like, so let me get this straight. You know, you ran down in this firefight to help. And I was like, yeah, but they don't understand you know, multiple moving elements in a firefight. They don't understand giving up the high ground. They don't understand when we have air assets, we need to keep people in position so we know everything is. And that was all the complexity that occurred. Mm -hmm. And so that was the pivotal moment that, you know, I really got a knot jerked in my chain. They they actually pulled me back to Bagram and Mm -hmm. I had to meet with the CEO. And, you know, if I had humbled myself, Mark, and said, you know what, you're right, I made a bad call, uh, that probably would have been the end of it. But I didn't. I fought it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fought it tooth and nail. I said, you know what, I did what was right. You know, I ran to the sound of the guns. I went down to support our guys. And instead of taking that step back that I know you talk a lot about, I know I talk about it, to reflect on myself, my decision making, you know, what really led up to all those things and what would have been the impact if things had gone wrong from my decision. Mm-hmm. Instead, I fought it. So I had several guys, you know, who I bumped heads with who were like, kick him out, take his trident, get rid of him. Hmm. And uh, so here I was, I'd been in for 12 years at this point, 13 years, and I was faced with the prospect of losing my trident. And, uh, and I still fought. I still was in denial about the whole thing. And I went before the CO and thankfully he believed in me. And, you know, these are these moments that you have when uh, people give you a second chance. And that's what he did. He said, you know what, you're going to get a, a unofficial letter of reprimand. Mm-hmm. He said, it's, uh, it's going to sit in my safe and the oncoming CO is safe and your next platoon. He said, it better be spotless. You better be the best leader out there. And he said, if you are, this gets shredded and you move on down the road with your career. He's like, if it's not, we sign this and it officially goes into your record, which would have ended my career. Who was your CEO at the time? Bob Gussentine. Mm, yeah, good guy. And then, uh, and then the last thing they did, uh, they sent me to Ranger School. Oh, cool. <laughs> I'm sure which, it wasn't cool to you at the time. No. As a matter of fact, I was really bitter about going, I'll be honest. I bet. Uh, after the Red Wings deployment, how emotional that was, after getting myself in trouble and uh, and coming home from deployment, a very you know hard deployment, and turning around and having to go to Ranger School only about eight weeks after I got back, uh, yeah, it did not go over well with either me nor my wife. Mm-hmm. But I tell you what, Mark. I broke down some walls when I was in ranger school and there's a lot more stories we could be on here for hours, but the bottom line is, well, here, I'll tell this story because I think it's important. I've only quit one time in my life and I quit during ranger school. Mm. Um, Before it really started, 
when I showed up at Ranger School, I had an incredibly bad attitude. I didn't want to be there. And I also totally underestimated Ranger School. I mm. thought, hey, man, I'm a SEAL. I got combat experience. This course is going to be a joke. Mm. Uh, it was not a joke. It, no. was, uh, it was very hard. <laughs> I've heard. I didn't get to go to Ranger School. I, I, you know, just the opportunity wasn't there. But I had a lot of my friends who, for a little while in the mid, I'm sorry, the, let's see, early 90s, they were trying to get all JOs over to Ranger School. So there were a bunch of guys that sent, you know, in staccato and they were coming back, you know, looking like POWs. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, what happened to you, man? You know, you left, you left this, you know, Hollywood seal all buffed and tan. And now, you you know, you look like the cat dragged in when they came back. Yeah, like we just stepped out of Auschwitz. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. But I, I um, and this is a God moment. So the bottom line is uh, I, I got three days into the course and I just had the worst attitude at all. I wasn't helping out my classmates. I stuck to myself. The instructors saw it. And of course, they just pinged on me all the time. You know, so all this friction was building up inside me. And uh, on the third day, we did the land nap course. Mm. It was brutally cold that morning. It was February in, uh, in uh, Georgia. And it was uh, it was so cold that when we left at about 3 a.m. to start, my camelback hose had frozen and I was just bitter. Uh, we weren't allowed to wear any warm gear. <laughs> so I just had a horribly bad attitude. And instead of launching on this course and running out to knock it out, there were six points you had to make in about four or five hours, if I remember correctly. I had taught land nav, So I was like, you know what, man? I'm not going to run around in these woods in the dark and stab myself in the eye. I'm just going to take my time. And when the sun rises, then I'll run and I'll knock out the rest. Well, that did not happen. The sun rose. I think I'd only found one point and uh, it was a hard course and I failed it. Mm. And the instructors totally started giving me grief. And it was at that point I mentally snapped and I said, screw this course, screw you. And this is where we start telling ourselves lies in life. Yeah. I convinced myself in that moment that I had, you know, the mistake I made in Afghanistan, the mistake I'd made drinking and partying with the guys. Uh, and now this mistake I made with uh, Ranger School that I would never be able to go back and lead in the teams again. Nobody would ever follow me no matter what I did. Mm. And that was a lie I told myself to justify what I was doing. So I had to go see the Ranger Colonel and I didn't. And he was like, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I laid out this sob story of I'm a victim. I was in combat and I went to help these guys and they threw me under the bus. And thankfully, he saw right through that and was like, oh, OK, well, here, let me call this one guy. And uh, I didn't want to talk to anybody, but uh, who he called uh, and I'm, I'm going to re re leave him nameless because he doesn't want to be named great phenomenal guy you would know him immediately and i'll tell you offline uh very respected leader but he was the only guy that i couldn't say no to when this ranger colonel handed me the phone and because <laughs> i respected him so much it was like it was like him handing me the phone from my dad yeah right and and i said and he said red what are you doing and i laid out my whole shop story i'm being thrown under the bus and all this and nobody will ever follow me again and when 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 and he said to me the most profound thing uh, amongst many other things. But he basically said to me, people will follow you if you give them a reason to. Mm -hmm. I love and that. I, it was phenomenal. And it was the tipping point I needed. So that, that shift there was 
it's not about you, Jay. It's about, it's about them. So stop your fucking pity party. <laughs> Start focusing on your teammates, right? Absolutely. And he was like, go back, crush this course, show these Rangers how it's done, come back to the teams and lead. And that began a whole new journey in my life of leadership, understanding leadership, watching leadership, studying leadership. And, and 180 turned me around on how I approach things. I love that. You know, I studied leadership. I, I got an ABD, meaning all but my dissertation in leadership at University of San Diego. I, I didn't finish because um, I went to Iraq myself. I got recalled to go to, uh, to Baghdad in 2004, and I was just starting my dissertation for my PhD. But anyways, the reason I was thinking or that came up to me is there's this um, famous leadership author named Zelesnik, and he's got this concept called twice born. It's almost like born again. And he says, you really can't become a true leader until you hit that bottom and then your self-concept gets shattered and that story that you've been telling yourself gets shattered and you, you emerge like a phoenix with a whole new story. And that story is a more expansive one. And, you know, in my terminology, you've gone from me to we, you know, and no matter how much you get told in the SEAL and BUDS training or from the SEAL ethos that, you know, you got to be ready to lead, ready to follow, never quit. And it's all about your teammates um, until you have that experience that you had. I don't think it's possible. You know what I mean? And a lot of our, a lot of leaders, even the SEALs haven't had that experience and they're still positioned, you know, they're still doing an adequate job technically and meeting the requirements of the position. But that authentic, true leadership is when you have to, when you really humble yourself to this notion that, you know, every, pretty much everything you've been telling yourself is bullshit. Yeah. And you were right. And it took, you know, it took a long time uh, or not a long time, but it was a very hard journey at Ranger School to come to grips with the fact that, hey, you're not as great as you think you are. Right. And yeah, you know, you've been placing yourself first in every situation and specifically that situation in Afghanistan. The reality was I saw a shortcut to establish myself as this great leader or great warrior or whatever. Hey, look at me. I'm going to run down into this valley and save everybody. Mm. Uh, but the reality is combat doesn't always play out that way. Uh, you know, the whole life's not fair. Combat's not fair. You've got to do everything according to our tactics and SOPs because uh, those are the things that will protect us. Combat's chaotic enough. Yeah. And you know, it's, that's what this brings to mind is you really can't try to be a hero, right? hero-ness has to find you, right? Yeah. If you, if you go out and say, hey, this is my moment. I'm going to go be a hero. Stand by. Exactly. Interesting. This podcast is supported by Qualia, brought to you by the Neurohacker Collective. Qualia is a nootropic, that's a brain supplement, essentially, that will help you reach your full potential cognitively. Now, I love this product. I use it every day, and when I run out, I feel like I'm you know, maybe missing out. When I take the qualia, I'm able to think more clearly and I feel more focused and engaged. You know, it really also helps me when I'm tired and overwhelmed get back into my game. I think qualia is a breakthrough product and the ingredients are all extremely high quality and they cover a broad spectrum of neurological capacities. So you're going to have to check it out and research it for yourself, but the best way to do that is to actually try it. And Qualia, the team over there, has offered you a 15% off the price of a monthly subscription. That is awesome. I mean, that is, is extremely generous. So if you want to get 15% off, 
and try out Qualia, then go and get a monthly subscription. Just try it out for a couple months using the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R. Don't forget the R. UNBEATABLEMIND15R. And it's sold at their website, neurohacker.com. N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com. Neurohacker.com. Use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R to get 15% off that monthly subscription. Check it out. I think this stuff is awesome to support your training in developing an unbeatable mind. Hoo-yah. Okay, so let's, you know, we've gone, gone like 40 minutes. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but we really haven't even gotten into talking about your Iraq experience and how you got wounded. And there was a little bit of, I remember you, uh, though we've never met, I remember very clearly seeing all the social media buzz about your, um, you know, your, your recovery of Bethesda and what you posted on the door. So before I jump into that, let's talk about Iraq and your leadership um, transformation and, and then, you know, how you got wounded and all that. Absolutely. So uh, coming back to the SEAL teams after Ranger School, I stepped into that platoon where we were going to be going to Iraq. And just uh, the way I led was much different. I really relied on the guys. I trusted the guys. I, I leaned on the guys to ask, hey, how things are done, to make sure that I knew what I was doing and, and to give them, you know, the opportunities. And thankfully, I had a really good OIC who uh, he gave me a lot of opportunities to lead and, and learn. So by the time we got to Iraq, I, I will admit that platoon was probably the best platoon I've ever been in mm. uh, throughout my career. We just gelled really well. Everybody got along well. We were a very strong uh, platoon and got into Iraq at the tail end of the Anbar. Uh, the, the Anbar awakening started in the fall of 06, and we got into Fallujah in the spring of 07, and it was very volatile. Mm -hmm. um, we were conducting operations almost every night, and there were certain areas we would go into that uh, almost every time we'd go in there, we'd get into a firefight. Yeah. So very good experience, you know, as a, as a platoon and as a SEAL. And um, I was able to operate in several different roles. So gaining experience as both uh, it started out as a sensitive site exploitation commander and then moved to assault force commander and mobility force commander. So learning all the different aspect, aspects of conducting operations in, you know, Iraq and an urban and desert rural Let's environment. Break, break those down for the listeners. So assault force is the guys who are going in to take down the target, SSE or sensitive site exploration. Those, so you were there after the takedown to to pick up any intel, and then the mobility guys are in charge of the, getting you there and getting you back. Is that right? Yep, that's right. By so, the way, yeah, for listeners to know this, like none of this was part of my experience as a SEAL. Like we used to walk to our target or jump out of a helicopter. We did not have Humvees in the 90s. It's crazy. It, 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 entire mode of operation changed. And I saw that when I was leading the CERDEX. Remember the CERDEX? Yeah. I, I launched that thing with Bart Jackson and Bill Wilson. We ran the first one. And then I was the kind of a, on uh, the group one staff to lead those efforts. I think I led like five or six of them, but that was all where we're trying to like get platoons into that whole notion that you're going to be using Humvees and you got to coordinate efforts with Humvees and gone are the days where you're going to be rucking 18 clicks to a target. Pretty different. Uh, you know, there was a lot of times we patrolled here. Did you? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Because we, you know, we could control the element of surprise, but, right. and, and the ID, uh, the IED threats were so high. We tried to avoid driving if we could help it. 
No kidding. That makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of times we would do a, a, well, I don't want to get into tactics, but yeah, we varied how we got into to different areas. Right. And uh, and we just we learned a lot and we were a great uh, it was just a great group. So you did over 100 missions at that deployment. That's that's incredible. Uh, I, I did close to 50, but I mean, our, our troop did probably close to 100. OK, what were some of the high points, uh, you know, things that you're really proud of in that that uh, deployment? Uh, probably the, the two that stand out the most is, uh, and this was kind of a validation or kind of a redemption moment for me, if you will. You know, I had had these black marks on my career and, and, you know, not trying to redeem myself, you know, just focused on the task, the mission and what I was doing. But, uh, we, we went in on a target in June of 2007 and, um, we were hitting three targets simultaneously in a compound. And I had uh, I had a second the second target leading the guys on that, and on our target the situation got incredibly chaotic. As we made entry, there were guys on the roof, uh, guys who had a barricaded machine gun, and they started dropping grenades down on us. Mm-hmm. Outside, we had eleven women and children. So one of our guys was immediately fragged, and our interpreter was fragged really badly. You know, shoulder, neck. Um, so he's bleeding all over the place and it's just chaos. We have, uh, these guys on the rooftop shooting at us. We had shooters in another house about 50 yards behind the one we were making entry that started shooting at us in the house. So just a really crazy chaotic situation. And this all happened as we're halfway through clearing the house. Mm. Um, you know, we popped up onto the roof. They tried to take that guy out. And one of our guys took around in the chest that got his body armor, stopped it, mm. but they fell back. And, uh, so we're in this crazy situation and, um, you know, I, I was faced with multiple shooters, guys spread out all over the target, 11, uh, women and children in the middle of this firefight. I had Iraqi national police that were spread out between our target and another target, and we were trying to, you know, get a head count to, to call in a fire mission on the house behind us to try and neutralize those guys. So just a really complex situation. But I, I took a breath and I just said, OK, you know, what are the first steps that we need to take? You know, mm-hmm. hey, let's all stay calm. And uh, and that really we came out of that. We managed to take out the guys behind us. We, we established a casualty collection point we secured our interpreter and our other wounded guy and then we managed to shoot and maneuver to another house about 60 yards away with the women and children we brought all them with us so under fire we moved these women and children and then uh called fire on that house that had the barricaded machine gun and uh took that house out neutralized him so we didn't have anybody else injured and not a scratch on those women and children so uh, that was definitely probably the high point of uh, the deployment for me, and mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of guys said, "Wow, you know, Red did a great job." Nice. When you called for fire like that, I mean, we had sorties up in the air. Right? How, how how long did it typically take to for them to drop ordnance? Very quickly, because right. we were we were at a point in the deployment. It was so hot where we were operating that. It was almost a go. No, we always had an air asset dedicated to us for the missions we were conducting. Mm-hmm. So it, it was pretty quick. And that night we had an AC one thirty. So 
And were you back in our day? We used laser rangefinder, so we not rangefinder, but we'd laser the target, and they would track on that. Did they, is that still a tactic that's used, like, or is that obsolete? Uh, it can be. Can be okay. Pretty fascinating stuff. Um, let me let's shift fire now. Uh, a, a later op, you were wounded, and you're you know you talk about this in your book, but you were you entered the house and you got hit right away with machine gun fire. Let's talk about that as best you can and give us, you know, give the listener a sense of what it's like to face enemy fire like that and be the recipient. Yeah, absolutely. And it actually, it didn't happen in the house. We took the house down initially and uh, we were told that the uh, enemy leader we had been tracking all deployment was in that house. Mm -hmm. And um, so we really expected pretty fierce resistance, made that entry. Nobody was there, but we could tell we had just missed people and uh, started doing our secondary searches, started uncovering explosives, weapons, things like that. So uh, my team was dedicated to the actual takedown of that house itself. So we had stood down while the, uh, while the external security team was taking care of everything they were finding around the compound and our explosive ordnance guys were going to blow all that stuff up and we we're going to call it the night. And uh, we started seeing a whole bunch of activity on another house about 100 yards away. And uh, our snipers saw five individuals run out of that house and run across the street and hide in some pretty dense vegetation. Mm. So I, uh, the ground force commander said, Hey, will you take your team and uh, maneuver on these guys? Leave, leave your Iraqis. Just take, you know, take our guys because the Iraqis didn't have night vision. Mm -hmm. And he said, Hey, maneuver on these guys. So we maneuvered around. We had seen this before. We had seen these guys run out and hide. So we were just going to go over there and wrap them up. Well, what we didn't know was that, that five-man team was the last part of the security detail for this senior leader. And we estimate it was anywhere from a 12 to 15-man crew that had an ambush line set up across the street from that house. Hmm. And uh, long story short, we walked right into that ambush. I was stitched uh, across the body armor and body. I took two rounds in the left elbow. Our medic was initially hit. One of our other guys ran up to try and grab our medic. He was stitched up the body three times as he tried to grab our medic. Mm. And uh, just a really bad situation. They had two PKM machine guns uh, on that ambush line, and then the rest were AK shooters. Mm. Did that other SEAL and that medic uh, survive the incident? They did. We didn't lose anybody, thank God. Um, yeah. And uh, so the only point of cover we had was a – so across the street, the house was kind of diagonal from where they were, and there was a road, and then it was nothing but open desert for who knows, miles mm -hmm. uh, across the street. And the only point of cover, there was an old, uh, like, John Deere-type tractor tire. Mm-hmm. Uh, off in the uh, northeast corner and that's what the guys fell back to wow. and i was trying to lay down fire when i got stitched across the body two rounds in the elbow which i thought had shot my arm off mm. and uh tried to lay down some more fire uh got shot up again took rounds off my helmet left night vision tube shot off took rounds off my weapon jesus and then I got up to try and run back to the tire, and I caught around in the face. Uh, it caught me directly in front of the ear, traveled through my face, uh, exiting my nose, right cheekbone, 
uh, blew out my cheekbone, took off most of my nose, vaporized my orbital floor, it broke all the bones above my eye, and uh, shattered my jaw. Fuck. And it knocked me out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Which, so which a were, lot of guys, were, Mark, which were, a lot of guys, of course, give me shit over. They're, I mean, jokingly, but they're like, yeah. dude, one bullet to the face and you pass out. What kind of team <laughs> guy are you? Exactly. <laughs> so you had stood up to run to cover. So the bullet hit you from behind. Yep. It was the only round. And I'll be honest, in, in the book, if people read it, I, it took me a while to figure that out. And I'll be honest, it was almost six months after the firefight when I was with one of the guys you didn't know that I was in the fire, firefight with who told me that that's what had happened. For those first six months, I thought somehow I had gotten myself turned around on the ground and I had taken one of those rounds while I was on the ground. Right. Yeah, because I, I, th- I do think that's what I read back, um, you know, when this incident came to my attention because of what you hung on your door, which I want to read to people, but that, that you had gotten shot point blank in the face. And I was thinking that's hard to survive that, you know? Yeah. Incredibly, uh, unluckily, lucky, I guess. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> so um, you, of course, that, that, that ended that deployment for you. Um, many surgeries, skin grafts, try to reconstruct your face. And I think I got a note here that said you had 37 surgeries that you underwent. Yep. That's, that's incredible. Um, while you were in recovery, I'm just going to read this. Um, Somehow uh, you had, you know, people must have been coming to you with a sense of pity. And so it probably pissed you off a little bit. And, and so I'm going to read a sign that Jason hung in his door. It says, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming to this room with sorrow or to feel sorry for my wounds, go elsewhere. The re- wounds I received, I got in a job I love, doing it for people I love, supporting the freedom of a country I deeply love. I'm incredibly tough and I will make a full recovery. What is full? That is the absolute utmost physically. My body has the ability to recover. Then I'll push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you are about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you're not prepared for that, go elsewhere. <laughs> I love that. That is awesome. Thank you. What, what um, inspired you to write that? Uh, you nailed it. Uh, I had had some people come into the room expressing pity over what had happened. Uh, And they were talking about, you know, what a waste. We send these young men and women off to war and they come back broken. And, uh, and it just, it made me angry. And I'll be honest, it wasn't like I, I mulled over it for a day or two and then wrote that out. It was truly a stream of consciousness in the moment. I couldn't talk because I was wired shut and I was tricked. So all I could do is write. So in that moment, I wrote that sign out. Um, And that's, Hand it to someone and say, hey, paste this on the door. Or I did it. Up? I gave it to my wife. Oh, <laughs> yeah. awesome. I gave it to my wife and I said, hey, put this <laughs> on the door. And originally it was on a, uh, on because what I was writing on was eight and a half by 11 piece of printer paper. Mm-hmm. And that's what the original sign was on. And I said, hey, put this on the door. And I said, tell everybody they got to read it. And a few days later, I had somebody else come in after we had put the first sign up. And they also were expressing pity. So I told my wife, I said, hey, go find me the biggest piece of neon poster board you can find. 
<laughs> and uh, and I transcribed it word for word uh, onto that piece of poster board and said, put this on the door. I told all the doctors, nurses, and medical staff, I said, nobody's allowed into my room unless they read this sign. And uh, <laughs> a couple of days later, a guy, you know, one of, I don't even remember who it was, but somebody took off their trident and tacked it into the door. And, uh, you know, a few days later, a, a New York firefighter took a picture of it and it went viral. That's cool. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, somehow President Bush got wind of it. He invited, this is probably a little bit later when you were recovering um, or more fully recovered, but you got to go visit the White House. What was that like? Amazing. Um, and it was, it was a year later. Okay. So I got wounded in September of 07 and I got invited to the White House almost exactly a year later, September of 08. And I went and visited President Bush in uh, October. And it was incredibly surreal. Um, I've never been one to be that starstruck. You know, I've met some relatively famous people and, you know, awesome to meet them. And I'm, I'm always excited by their accomplishments. But at the same time, I've never been someone that felt like, you know, short of breath or, you know, some people really get caught up, I guess, in a celebrity status. The only person I felt that way with was uh, President Bush. And I don't want to say, I mean, part of that was him, but it was much more the whole experience of being in the White House yeah. and going to the Oval Office and having my family there um, was just really, really incredible and just very humbling and surreal. And he was the most gracious. He spent 35 minutes with me and my family in the mm -hmm. Oval Office. And uh, there was... <laughs> Just just a great, genuine guy. Guy felt like, you know, we could be out having a beer and talking about all this stuff together. Yeah, I've heard that about him. I was at the White House uh, visiting um, Bob Harward. Do you know Bob? Yeah. Harvard? Yep. Yeah, he was, uh, um, I think he had Ali Northold position well, uh, uh, for a few years there. And my wife and I went and my son, we visited him. And uh, Bush came in on his helicopter and, uh, you know, he kind of like stopped by to say hi to the guys. I didn't really get to meet him, but I was there while it was happening and I got to observe him and just seemed like a real down to earth guy and one who had great respect for the military, which was uh, pretty, pretty interesting because it was a little di different, different, you know, presidents have had different relationships in the military. But one thing I can say positive about Bush was that he really respected the military. Yeah, for sure. And he was phenomenal with me and my family. So, so. Now that you're, you know, you, you've recovered and you got out of the SEALs, you, you actually stayed in a couple of years. You ended up doing a full retirement, right? You didn't get med medically retired? I, I did get medically retired, but I did stay for the rest of my time. I wanted to, well, for the first few years, I held on to hope that I could get back operation. Mm -hmm. So I tried through a lot of rehab, a lot more surgeries. Um, my elbow was effectively destroyed. And and that was that was really the big obstacle to me going back operational. Originally, uh, we kind of went down this road of originally they talked about amputating it. And then thankfully, I had a doctor who fought to keep it. So then my arm was fused. I couldn't build, uh, bend my elbow at all. And then I found a doctor out of Johns Hopkins that was able to do a surgery that gave me uh, limited motion. But it still wasn't enough motion, you know, like right now I can't bend. If, if you were to take your arm and, you know, the same side arm and reach in and touch your side to touch your ribs, mm -hmm. uh, that's a pretty severe bend in your elbow to make that happen. Mm -hmm. um, I cannot do that. I can't touch my side with my left arm anymore. 
So needless to say, for an operator, your ability to grab magazines or grab things on your H gear is a real problem. And uh, so I fought and fought and fought to try and get back operational and finally had to give up the ghost. And at that point, I was at 18 years. Mm -hmm. And the team said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I I came in to do 20 years, so I'd really like to finish 20 years. So they, uh, I was already over at Dan Neck at the time. And they said, uh, hey, you know, we'll uh, let you work with Wounded Warriors, Families of the Fallen, these different programs and projects and ops. So I got to finish my career on my terms. And then because of my injuries, they still medically retired me. I'm not kidding. Yep. So I, which for me was phenomenal because I got my full 20 year retirement, but still fell under the medical retirement, which gives some extra benefits. Right. And like my retirement is totally tax free. So there are some nice benefits from that. Yeah. Well, you earned it, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. Moving too slow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's one way to look at it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for your service, and uh, that's that's just amazing, amazing story. So, and of course, service for you is just you know you're just getting warmed up. I think you know first to serve your country as a warrior, now um, as a teacher, author, and uh, advocate. I would say. So your book is called The Trident, and that's a, that's your story. I think basically what you kind of just outlined, right? Correct. A little bit. So I'm looking forward to reading that. I haven't read it yet, but I've heard of it and I know it's really, I've heard of this very, very good. So if you're listening to this and you want an inspiring book, not a uh, chest beating Navy SEAL, you know, uh, I'm awesome kind of book, but a real humble look at leadership and, you know, the story that Jason's telling, then then go buy the Trident. I can't wait to read it myself. And now you've got an organization uh, where you're um, out there doing some speaking and leadership uh, uh, inspiration. Uh, it's called Soft Spoken without the T. S O F Spoken dot com. That's my speaking company. Yep. So okay. we're uh, um, so that's getting out speaking um, and talking about exactly many of the things that you speak on. Also on leadership, teamwork, overcoming adversity. I mean, my my motto, my mantra is overcome, and that is the key focus on everything I speak on. But obviously, you know, I believe that leadership and the overcome mindset, you know, resiliency go hand in hand. As a strong leader, you have to be resilient. So my my key motto that I always say is lead always and overcome all. And that's what uh, soft spoken is focused on. Uh, and then I have the Combat Wounded Coalition, which is a nonprofit focused on supporting wounded warriors. Uh, we have evolved over the years. We started out as wounded wear, providing free clothing and clothing modification to wounded warriors, but started moving more into the integration piece. And in 2018, we're actually moving into the uh, leadership instruction and integration for wounded warriors. We're launching a new program. The first one runs February 19th called the Overcome Academy. And it is a um, two-week program for wounded warriors, uh, leadership, resiliency, communication, teaching them how to speak, teaching them how to tell their story with purpose. And then they have to get back out in the community as leaders. So it's a requirement for them to uh, take on a leadership role with the youth mentorship program, whether it's Boy Scouts, whether it's Little League, whether it's church youth group, it doesn't matter. They just have to take that on. And then they have to speak at a school in their community. And they have to speak for uh, a business that typically will sponsor them. Oh, that's cool. 
you know, I think that's critical. I mean, one of the key things that, you know, people need for recovery is a purpose, you know, you know, some, something positive to focus on. I think a lot of the, a lot of the vets who are suffering this, you know, are wandering, right. They've lost a sense of mission. I think that um, there's probably a way that we can support, mutually support each other, and in particular along the lines of, of serving the vets. I mentioned our Courage Foundation at the beginning of this call. We just launched Courage last year, so 2017 was our first full year. And this year with our Burpees for Vets Challenge, you know, we're hoping to raise a quarter million dollars for vets uh, suffering from PTS, and we're looking for good organizations to partner with. So Josh and I, Josh Mance and I are, um, are going to kind of scan the horizon and see what organizations are, are worthy. So <laughs> I will, um, we'll be talking further about that because I think what you're doing is, is uh, very solid and it's filling a much needed gap in vet care. You know, the VA system has completely failed the veterans. I, I should say that, you know, what they should do is provide a nice handoff to, to, to real care organizations. And so maybe that's the way it'll evolve. But yeah. No, I agree. Uh, and Josh is actually coming in to speak at our first Overcome Academy. At the, uh, he'll speak at the end, and then he's going to speak uh, at our Black Tie Gala the next night. So uh, we're pretty excited to have him. Uh, you know, great guy and a good role model for a lot of these wounded warriors that are going through this. No doubt. Awesome. Well, good luck with that, and let's stay in touch. I'll hook you up with uh, John Atwater, who runs our Courage Foundation, and of course, Josh is coming on the board, so you know we'll we'll be in touch on that. Awesome, Jay. Thanks so much for your time. Uh, we went a little bit long, but uh, every second of this has been very, very fascinating and super valuable for the listeners. So, really appreciate it. I know everyone listening really appreciates you and says thank you for your service and uh, keep charging, keep leading. Hey, we'll do absolutely, Mark. Lead always and overcome all. It's what we do. Yeah, who are we out of that? And we'll see you in 2018. Thanks, yeah, man. Jay. Thank you. You bet. Out here. All right, folks. Jason Redman, check out soft, sofspoken.com. That's his speaking. Um, if, you're, if you're looking for you know, an inspirational speaker for your company or for an event, and uh, check out his book, The Trident. And stay tuned for more on our work together with the philanthropic efforts to help Vets, you know, 22 vets a day are committing suicide. I mean, that is just unsat. It's unsat, and we've got to do something about it. And if you're listening to this, you know, you can help out just by, you know, referring someone to the Courage Foundation or to Jay's organization. You know, if, you, if you're active and you want to challenge yourself, then do some burpees with me. You know, I'm committing to 100,000 burpees this year. I already cranked out my 300 before this podcast. And so I've, I think I've got pledges for a few thousand dollars. My goal is to get $250,000 raised. So I'm just getting warmed up. So you're going to hear me harping on this quite a bit. But we want to have 20, we want to overall do 22 million burpees collectively. 22 million burpees. I think that would be pretty cool. All right. So thanks again for listening. Stay focused, train every day, and uh, develop that unbeatable mind. Divine out. See you next time. Boys, make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. Oh.